Welcome to the Living Well Podcast from Morneau Chappelle. I'm Mark Hennick. We're on a hiatus right now for just a couple of weeks as we gear up for our season two uh, with a whole new slate of guests and important topics on what it means to be well, uh, especially after a and in and after a pandemic, uh, since we're still very much uh, in it. Now, over the course of our hiatus here, this couple of weeks, we're reaching back into the vault of the last season. We're condensing and distilling some of the really important conversations and fascinating guests we had uh, and bringing them back to you in a, in a truncated, uh, abbreviated form. So that way you can catch up. If you want to go back and listen to the full interviews with any of the folks that you're hearing in these clip shows, uh, go back to our first season and you can find them there. They're, it's really worth your while to go uh, and listen to the whole interviews. But until then, uh, here's a, a Another episode, uh, a distilled and, and refined episode of the Living Well podcast for Morneau Chappelle. We're eight months into the pandemic now, and we're a little more well-adjusted, I think, to the new reality. We're working from home, limiting our social circles, and maybe even keeping our kids home to do online learning. And while we may have our lives a little bit more under control than we did before, one thing that remains a challenge is parenting. We all have a tendency, I think, to strive for perfection. Our expectations are high, and we thrive on productivity and efficiency. And I think the same can be said for parenting. Moms and dads are always doing whatever they can, whatever we can, to raise their kids right. But how has the pandemic changed our expectations of ourselves as parents? How can we expect to continue forward when our ability to function as we always have before has changed so dramatically. I mean, now we're just trying to be good enough. Anne Douglas is a health and parenting writer. She speaks with thousands of parents across Canada and around the world about the trials and tribulations of parenting in all its forms. She says that the pandemic is exhausting on so many levels. Parenting was a juggling act before the pandemic, but now so many of the supports that made it a reasonably manageable juggling act have been yanked out from under people. So everybody is scrambling. Everybody's feeling like they're letting down their employers, their kids, their partners, their friends. There's just, it's like a tsunami of exhaustion and guilt. Initially, people treated it like an extended March break or, you know, midwinter sort of, you know, interruption to their lives. Um, But as it came out the other side and they were expected to go back to work and to juggle all these things, that's when I think the stress started to ramp up because uh, it's not like the entire country decided all at once they wanted to work from home. It wasn't a choice. It was something that a lot of people found themselves sort of, you know, scrambling to make happen. And likewise, the whole remote learning thing. I don't even want to call it homeschooling because it did not feel like home or school, I think, in the midst of that mess. And the fact that even now, we really don't know when we're coming out the other side of these, this truly extraordinary time. So a lot of mental exhaustion. Anne says that parents are just going to have to shift their expectations of what parenting looks like right now in order to carry on. 
a lot of the time I was talking with people about sort of like modifying those expectations. If in normal times you can set the bar this high, uh, you have to drop that down a bit when all of your usual supports are not in place. And you were talking about formal things like childcare and school, like even just being able to say to the neighbor across the street, like, you know, I'm having the day from you know where, uh, can, can somebody, you know, take my kid for an hour or two so that I can do this emergency thing that has to happen? Like that was taken off the table as an option. And you can see how very quickly it began to feel like a really, like almost like a lot of parents were me- reaching the breaking point. So I think just people are really carrying around a pretty heavy burden even to this moment. And and I think the other thing we have to talk about is the fact that there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all parenting experience. So there's certainly a no such thing as a one-size-fits-all experience of parenting in a pandemic. Adjusting to something so traumatic has taken a toll on everyone. It has changed what work and productivity look like. Anne says that parents need their employers to give them a lot more space and support uh, while they remain home with their kids. Well, there has definitely been a lot of effort to try to support people behind the scenes. I mean, a lot of the conversations I had this spring were hosted by employers trying to sort of say to their employees, like, yeah, we get it. It's not a normal time. But I also think that that hasn't magically erased the expectations. Organizations have to be realistic and recognize that somebody with a toddler cannot do five hour long Zoom calls back to back. That's just not going to work in anybody's universe, right? So maybe having breaks between calls or giving people permission to be able to say, you know what, I'm going off camera, I'll be I'll rejoin the call when I can so that people parents in particular don't feel like they're sandwiched between a rock and a hard place, because that's a really terrible feeling. And that stress then spills over from the the parent slash employee to the kid because, you know, the kid's seen as like a problem to be solved as opposed to a human being to relate to. Anne's advice is simple. Don't strive for perfection. Strive for better communication with your family, your kids, and most importantly, go easy on yourself. If I could be imperfect and talk that through with my kids, I actually was helping them to develop a really important skill because they could see that you don't have to be perfect to have people love and care about you. And you can fix things when they go off the rails, as they often do in families, especially in, you know, hothouse conditions like what we've had in recent months. Being willing to say, you know what, I blew it. I was grumpy today. That wasn't a fair thing that I said, or you asked permission to do this. And I said, no way, never in a million years. Maybe I should have thought that through before that popped out of my head. And, uh, you know, let's do a redo on that. That's okay. Courtney Taylor had her first child right before the beginning of the pandemic. She says it's taken her some time to adjust to being a new mom during a very isolating time and to acknowledge that it's okay for her to have moments of feeling unhappy. To be honest, I think I really compartmentalized the whole thing. It was almost like a, okay, you know, this is going to be a month or two, we can hang on and get through this. And I think as time has gone on, even just the past couple of weeks, I'm starting to, and perhaps as I'm getting more and more comfortable in my role as a mother, I'm allowing more to come to the surface. And in the past couple of weeks, I've kind of been like, okay, it's been, you know, four and a half months. And we're starting to, I think, not just me, but other people too, starting to kind of realize, okay, how much more I thought I could hang on. And now that this is continuing, what do I do now that it's not just hanging on anymore? This is kind of going to be how I have to make it work. Um, You know, I can't just have anybody over to help. It's me. It's my mom. Um, And the inability to 
um, access things that I think we often before took for granted, story time at the library, um, you know, stuff like that. I have three other girlfriends who are off on mat leave. We were going to do stuff together that completely went out the window. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to sit in um, that, that feeling. Um, you know, I remember a while ago saying how ripped off I felt like I feel really ripped off that this is how it's turned out for me. But then, and I think we all do this, I feel bad for feeling ripped off because at the end of the day, I'm not sick. Nobody I know has died from COVID. Like people are dying around the world. So it's like really so self-deprecating, right? What do I have to be so ripped off about? But, you know, we know trauma and we know experiences aren't comparable. It's not a competition. So there, other people's strife doesn't invalidate mine, but um, I really have to work on taking time to sit in that feeling of being pissed, being feeling ripped off, feeling sad of what I've missed out on. Um, and allow myself to go there because I really think I've kind of just shoved it down so that you could kind of stay above water. Courtney describes her journey with mental illness and how difficult it was for her to manage her anxiety after having her daughter. Uh, the first two weeks postpartum, having never been pregnant, never having had a baby before, you know, you know that there's this postpartum in this fourth trimester and everybody talks about it. Um, and uh, I came home and within about a half an hour of being home completely fell apart. And then for the next two weeks was panicked. Is this just postpartum that everybody goes through? Or for me, is this something else? My anxiety almost seemed to have completely, well, dissipated a great deal during the pregnancy. I wasn't really anxious at all during the pregnancy. I had a fantastic pregnancy. Even the next day in the hospital, nothing, no anxious thoughts even came across my mind. It was only within about a half an hour of being home where I kind of, I had to do this and I had to do this. And I was like, oh my God, how do I do this? Courtney says she was lucky to have the support of her general practitioner, her family doctor, uh, to get her the resources she needed in case she developed any sort of postpartum depression. So I kind of put my supports all in place. Um, my doctor, my regular GP, had always said she'd monitor me closely. And I've actually been part of a study at Women's College Hospital in the Reproductive Life Stages program before I got pregnant. So I had their resources that I could tap into just because I was part of this study, which was lucky. So I did, in fact, do that um, about a week in, just in case these feelings didn't go away. Courtney's daughter's name is Hope. It's a name that she says means so much to her, as well as her followers on social media. Every day, she says, she posts a photo of Hope to Instagram, calling it the Daily Hope. The word is so heavy. It can carry so many things for so many people, and it just had, just took on so much meaning for me, for my life, for my future, for everything. Um, you know, it can be hope for the future. Like, she's part of this new generation. What can they do? Like, the meanings are endless, really. So, um, so I just knew that was going to be it. And it's it's worked. Um, you know, during the pandemic, Mark, you're on my social media feed. So, you know, every day I take a picture and I call it the Daily Hope. Um, and, you know, it's just a picture of her. But she's a pretty happy baby. She's good. I've been pretty lucky. Um, so the amount of people who tell me that it's been rough and some days they just look forward to a picture of her face because we know babies, they're innocent, they smile, they laugh, they make us laugh even if we're feeling terrible. So, um, you know, she's brought other people hope too. So she's kind of already lived up to her, lived up to her name. The Living Well podcast is brought to you by WellCan, a free mental health and well-being resource offered by Morneau Chappelle. At wellcan.ca and on the WellCan app in the App Store, you'll find information, assessments, and resources to support your mental health. 
Wellcan resources are supplied by Morneau Chappelle's expert clinicians, as well as through partnerships with some of the biggest companies from across Canada and around the world. And now back to the Living Well podcast and your host, Mark Hannick. Over the course of our hiatus between our first season and our upcoming second season, we're going back and revisiting some of the prior conversations we've had with some really fascinating guests. We're distilling them down and taking little bite-sized clips to share with you again here today. And if you want to go back and listen to the full episodes, I really encourage you to do so. Uh, We did a number of two-part episodes for most of the last season, actually. And this time around, we're revisiting the one that we did on parenting. Or I should say, the two that we did on parenting. Now, the first part of that one, uh, it focused on parenting in the pandemic, how parents were coping or not coping for that matter. Uh, We focused on working from home while trying to juggle nonstop parenting. And Douglas described this juggling act that the pandemic has forced upon Canadian families. And Courtney expressed her difficulty with being a new mom in the period of such extreme isolation. Now, the second part of that two-part episode on parenting uh, focused on the changes that we're seeing in child development. COVID-19 has forced children to remain in isolation with their families, unable to socialize and connect with others. Uh, Kids are supposed to socialize with their classmates and form relationships outside of their immediate families. So what are some of the big changes to healthy development that we're seeing as a result of COVID-19? What can we do to make sure that our kids are getting everything they need while they're stuck at home? Dr. Tanya Bibbs from the Erickson Institute in Chicago, Illinois, described in detail how the pandemic is changing the way kids are developing healthy relationships with others. Well, and this kind of isolation is, can be very dangerous for children because you know, if, if, if one of the things that we talk a lot about with children is that we, they develop in relationships with others. So the others might be other children or they develop in relationship with, with adults who are significant caregivers. Um, so if they are in a situation where they're isolated um, and they're not able to have those partners in development, then there are a range of ways that we might see that affected. One of, it might, one of those ways might be in their um, regulation and their ability mm-hmm. to regulate basically their basic physical functioning, um, their ability to understand their emotions, make sense of their um, emotions, to understand what's going on socially in their relationships mm-hmm. Um, and their inter- interpersonal interactions, um, and also uh, their ability to express and uh, to appropriately express their emotions within a given sort of cultural script. In, in other words, um, what does this what does this particular environment call for in terms of emotional expression or in terms of um, how one behaves? That is something children learn by doing it, just like the mm-hmm. rest of us, um, mm-hmm. and they get feedback from from each other and from adults uh, in terms of, you know, what's appropriate. So without the, the place to do that practicing, it's going to affect their ability to, to meet those developmental milestones. Dr. Bibbs says we need to make sure that we're able to support kids who have missed important milestones in their development once they leave their home and socialize with others in particular. There's significant milestones, and then there's there's what's significant to an individual child. So when we talk about significant milestones, we can think about all children um, going through um, important transitions, for example. And so we might think of a transition of a child going from uh, being at home with primarily with their family to being in a formal school setting, and that typically happens around the age of five. So. 
if that gets disrupted, um, because we know it's a significant milestone where, where children really start to go out into the world and understand life beyond their family, it's not going to sort of doom their future, but it's going to be something they have to go back. It, it still needs to be done. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, as, as children start to go back in that situation, we're really going to want to look out for what do they need in terms of support um, in being able to sort of uh, revisit those opportunities mm-hmm. for development. You know, there's a range of uh, concerns that we would want to think about in terms of what is each child experiencing in their lives and in, and in their developmental trajectory, and how does this affect them? Um, for three children of the same age, uh, there's going to be three different stories around that. Mm. Dr. Bibbs says that humans rely on interacting with others on a daily basis, not including those in our immediate family. So it's interesting because we talk often about children's self-regulation skills. And I, you know, I, I always find that to be, to be a bit of a misnomer because all regulation is co-regulation. So from the time, uh, well, we could talk about from the time a baby is born, even prior to that. But from the time of the baby, a baby is born, um, they are learning how to regulate their bodies. Um, anyone who spent time with a baby, with an infant, a newborn, knows that, that infants spend a lot of time figuring out how to regulate their bodies. They're regulating their sleep. They're, you know, they're trying to regulate their body temperature. They're trying to understand the difference between day and night. And all of these are done in relationship with other people. And so when they're crying and communicate, communicating through crying um, or reaching out for significant caregivers and knowing that someone reaches back, that's the beginning of co-regulation. That's the beginning of the sort of basic trust that when I reach out in the world, there's going to be someone else who reaches back. And that's the, and that when, um, and that as I try and figure out how to do this basic thing, there's someone who's going to be there to, to be a collaborator with me. Mm. That starts in infancy and it goes through our life, uh, through our life span. Anyone who has a partner, um, who is a supportive partner has experienced co-regulation because we, you know, we, we still rely on significant relationships to help us um, express our emotions appropriately, or um, if we feel like we get out of sorts, um, you know, we still rely upon that. She says we begin regulating ourselves at infancy, and it only progresses as we grow. And, and one piece of research is that uh, for when they studied how often infants and and their parents were in synchrony, in other words, they were sort of meeting each other where they were at, it was like 30%. And so, and, and that's, that's typical, that's healthy. And that means that other 70% children are figuring out ways to, to deal with that internally. They're developing coping skills mm. and that's healthy. We don't want to overtax children by any means. We don't, you know, but children need a certain amount of stress in order to develop coping skills. And so to expect any parent to be um, in sync with their children a hundred percent of the time um, is, is, is not only unreasonable, it doesn't happen. Um, and it's not what children need. Mm. So I, th- I think you can, you know, parents can let themselves off the hook for that. And I think that there's a, you know, I think that uh, as children, especially get older, they understand. And, I, you know, I, I, re- I re- collect a lot of social media memes, memes about uh, children talking about their parents parenting. Um, mm. And I think that uh, there's a lot of warmth and compassion and humor and universality <laughs> in the ways mm-hmm. that children come to understand the challenge and the mistakes parents make. And um, it's part of what ends up becoming a warm, loving, realistic, compassionate relationship. 
And a key part of self-regulation is our connection with other people. Psychoeducation supervisor Emily Morass says each family is dealing with the pandemic in a different way. Those that are adapting to the pandemic are still doing well, but those who have struggled from the beginning are still having a difficult time. There's no clear answer to it. Some people have been doing very good and some others are very struggling right now. And this is what we see and this is what we've been seeing from the beginning. And I guess at the beginning it was a little bit um, harder because everybody was just adapting to the situation. Mm. Now that we've been into it for a couple of weeks, um, some people have been able to adapt, thank. <laughs> um, but some others are still struggling. And now we're going to face a new phase with the schools reopening. So um, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, it's hard for most people. Um, but it, it depends on your, your background, really. Emily says she's seeing a lot of anxiety, depression, and difficulties with social skills. Um, a lot of anxiety problems mm -hmm. um, among the young kids as well, um, teenagers and parents. Um, a lot of behavioral problems at school, you know, um, being able to adapt to the situation, social skills mm -hmm. um, as well. Um, we tend to get more uh, externalized behavior, you know, things that are uh, bothering other people mm. and then those that are feeling it in inside. But um, it doesn't mean it's not as important. Sure. Um, but mainly anxiety, I'd say. If I had to put one, one thing, anxiety. I'd say anxiety, yeah, would be the, the, the most. For teenagers, we have a lot of self-harm right now, mm. I'd say. Um, well, depression as well. But like parents are more concerned about suicidal thoughts and, and self-harming them. And for uh, little kids, I'd say it's more like uh, trying to manage them to follow some of the rules in the house because they've been in the house for so long now. They, mm -hmm. they, they're lacking entertainment, so they're trying, you know, just to entertain themselves um, with parents that are not so available all the time because they're working from home at the same time. Emily brings up an important point when discussing how parents can manage their stress and anxiety while confined to their homes. She says there's only so much a parent can do to minimize the effects of the pandemic on their children. Yeah, it's a hard, like it's a, it's a big responsibility to know that like you have an impact on your kid's life. So you put, so, that puts so much pressure on yourself to do right. So the kids are going to feel right. Mm -hmm. Um, the, I think how we do it, well, how I do it with the parents is that I make them understand that they have a role in the development of their child, but that's, that's the size of the role they have. Mm -hmm. There's the environment and the schools and the friends and the experiences they're going to face has such a bigger impact. You can only take their hands and help them go through this, but there's a whole part that you have no control over. Mm -hmm. And accepting this in the first place is the first step. An important part of managing anxiety is being open to talking about what's going on and allowing yourself to fully feel what you need to feel. Emily describes her process in helping people to feel, process, and then control, ideally, anyway, their emotions. She says that it's a crucial time to be open about any anxiety or stress you may be feeling. I always use the same approach, um, which is a cognitive behavioral approach. It's just trying to first feel your emotion. You know, how do you feel in the moment? Are you stressed? Are you sad? Are you angry? Um, what's the underlying cause? You know, there's always a thought associated with it, whether it's good or bad or <laughs> whether it's wrong uh, assumptions. There's always a thinking going behind it, taking the time to understand what is the thought underlying your emotions and then analyzing it with um, with the assumptions that am I right to think this way? Am I wrong? You know, how did I come to these assumptions? Mm -hmm. Then trying 
all kinds of strategies you can do, you know, just to deal with your own emotions. But then understanding it, being in control of your own emotions, allow you to be able to work with the behavioral challenge of your kids. I'd say that's the first step, whether with all problematics um, you can face, anxiety, behavioral challenge, you have to be in control first and available to do something else. That's the first, the, the first part. Now, we're still in the midst of a global crisis. Feeling overwhelmed, anxious, and stressed out is common and, quite frankly, completely normal. Parents who have been working from home for the past eight months will either be a little relieved at sending their kids back to school or a little worried about the safety of the school itself, especially as things continue to change every day. Every day is presenting us with a new obstacle to overcome. If we have managed to get this far, though, into the pandemic without feeling like giving up, it's definitely a good sign to keep moving forward. It's okay to parent a little differently now and to let go of some of those expectations that you had before. Many thanks to Ann Douglas, Courtney Taylor, Dr. Tanya Bibbs, and Emily Morass for your refreshing, truly refreshing perspectives on parenting and childhood development. You've been listening to the Living Well Podcast. Mark Hennick is our host and executive producer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the show. There's no cost involved. You just hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating to let us know how we're doing. For more information about the show and the WellCan Project, visit wellcan.ca. The Living Well Podcast is produced for Morneau Chappelle by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford. Oh, 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 oh,